This is Cashflow Ninja, episode 131, with Christopher Whalen. Welcome to the Cashflow Ninja, the podcast empowering and inspiring people to discover how to generate their own income and manage, grow, and protect their own wealth in the new economy. Now, here is your host, MC Laubscher. Hello everyone, MC Lobster here and welcome to another episode of the Cashflow Ninja. I have a great show for you today and in today's show we're going to be looking at the current health of the global economy and markets and also the US and European banks. We'll, we'll also be looking at the housing and mortgage markets along with the auto industry and looking at a very inspirational American success story of Ford. My guest today is Christopher Whalen. Christopher Whalen is a Wall Street insider who understands the intersection of politics and finance and is known for telling his readers the truth. He has worked in politics at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York and as an investment banker for more than 30 years. Considered one of the most incisive and thoughtful financial analysts on Wall Street, Christopher covers a wide range of subjects from banking to housing to global economics and the Federal Reserve. He is the author of three books, Inflated, Financial Stability, and Ford Men. Christopher publishes the blog Washington and Wall Street and contributes to many other publications and appears in media outlets including CNBC, Bloomberg, and the Wall Street Journal. Please share your feedback and thoughts with me on today's interview. You can let me know your thoughts on Twitter by tweeting me at MC Lobster or by emailing me at info at CashflowNinja.com. And please remember to join our mailing list by signing up at CashflowNinja.com or texting CashflowNinja, one word, all capitalized, to 44222. That's two fours and three twos. Have you read Rich Dad, Poor Dad? Are you interested in real estate investing and don't know where to start or how to get the results you want? For valuable information to get you started, visit JoinOps Properties at JoinOpsProperties.com. Globally, coffee is a $90 billion industry, and International Coffee Farms offers a sustainable income opportunity through offshore sustainable agriculture. You can own a parcel of your very own cash-flowing specialty coffee farm in Panama. Sustainable income through sustainable agriculture. For more information on this income opportunity, you can download your free report at cashflowninja.com forward slash Panama. I've spoken about the world's most powerful system on the planet on this show, the banking system, and my firm, Valhalla Wealth Financial, helps people reclaim the banking function within their own lives through leveraging the tools and strategies of the wealthy. If you're interested in reclaiming the banking function within your own life and the infinite banking concept, you can email me at info at cashflowninja.com. Chris, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you very much for having me. Can you please share a little bit about your background and your journey with my listeners? Oh, my journey. Well, I'm a, uh, I'm the child of uh, two writers. Uh, grew up in Washington, D.C., was born in Richmond, Virginia. Um, really worked in politics early in my career after I graduated from Villanova University in 1981. 
Uh, I can remember a time when there weren't computers or cell phones. Uh, and I learned to write on a yellow pad with a, a pencil. So I worked as a uh, management trainee at the Fed in New York after I left uh, working for uh, Jack Kemp and have worked on Wall Street ever since. I've been an investment banker, analyst uh, most of my career, but my real passion is writing. Uh, I think the thing I'm known for uh, most is as a writer and a speaker, uh, as a, a truth teller. I've had a number of newsletters, uh, published a newsletter on Mexico many years ago called the Mexico Report, uh, the Institutional Risk Analyst, which I just relaunched, and another title called Washington and Wall Street, which is currently dormant, but you never know, we may resurrect it. And you have been very contrarian, one of the sane voices out there <laughs> over the last uh, decade or so and more, and we're one of the voices warning about the last financial crisis in 2008 and 2009. What were some of the warning signs that you saw, and do you currently see any similarities or under any other warning signs in the current uh, market environment? The, the key warning signs for the crisis, and this really goes back to the beginning of the 2000s, if you think of it, was that the, the Fed has had to uh, really over the past 40 years use lower and lower interest rates to try and push growth. Because, you know, ultimately growth is a function of population growth and productivity. And if you don't have a very rapidly growing population, it's hard to make the economy go fast. So when you saw that population growth rates in the U.S. were falling, really, from the 80s onward, and then you also had the baby boomers getting to that point in their career where they were pretty much done working, and the 2000s were the last hurrah, all buying second homes and all of this. So you saw some of the warnings in the demographic data, which is very, very important for all aspects of finance. And then you also saw warnings just in, in the financial markets, uh, the tendency of participants to cheat, to engage in fraud. Uh, you saw it in the financial data that was coming from the banks you know, in 2004, 2005. You had people like Countrywide and Washington Mutual uh, reporting negative defaults. So what they were telling you was that credit had no cost and that everything was great. And, you know, Citibank was the same way. They stopped uh, doing their default studies every year because they said, well, gee, Chris, we have no defaults. This was obviously a red flag. <laughs> so, you know, part of being an analyst is to look at the data. But part of another important part is to have the historical context to know how data changes through time and know that data 20 years ago or 30 years ago, when you had different population growth rates and different demographic patterns in the economy, uh, have to be treated differently. That's the biggest challenge for economists is that they don't tend to do that. They just look at the data and say, well, I have 30 years of data, but the underlying circumstances around those data sets have changed. And you have to be cognizant of that qualitative change around the numbers. Yeah, because it's definitely a different time. And we've seen the financialization of markets. Um, and you've, you've certainly looked at that. Um, so if you compare the two at a time where we're at right now with the last crisis, where do you think in this cycle are we? Well, we've once again seen 
uh, the Fed create a lot of asset bubbles in real estate, commodities. You saw it in oil prices really from 2010, 2011 onward, where cheap financing boosted production and boosted demand for a number of different asset classes. This time it's commercial real estate. You know, last time it was residential real estate, although residential has also gone up a lot for different reasons. So because the central bank can't make us have more babies and because they can't really do anything about productivity growth, they have, as a last resort, a desperate measure, decided to explicitly target inflation and explicitly cause asset prices to go up more than they would otherwise. And you see this very definitely in commercial real estate in the major cities around the U.S. now, here in New York. We are so overbuilt, it's not even funny. And we're going to see a big correction here. You'll probably see some significant bankruptcies among the developers. Uh, But the Fed, because of their mandate to cause employment to grow and to also cause a general increase in consumer uh, spending, when you look at the neo-Keynesian prayer book, uh, they engage in these behaviors which I think are reckless and dangerous, but they do it because they don't know what else to do. I mean, these are conventional academic economists, and when they look at the world, they, they have a very limited worldview. You know, Janet Yellen is probably the most left-wing Fed chairman we've ever had, a real mainstream Keynesian economist, and she talks about being data-dependent. But the reality is, is that they're just trying to make something happen with the limited tools that they have. So, for example, they had the the Fed out buying treasury bonds and mortgage-backed securities. Uh, Really extraordinary uh, behavior on the part of the central bank, which had historically only bought short-term treasury paper, you know, one year or less. Now they're buying 30-year bonds and and mortgage bonds have an average life now of eight, 10 years. Uh, These are really big changes in the behavior of our policymakers. And I don't know that they're that well thought out. I mean, in the paper today, in the Wall Street Journal, they're talking about having a permanent 2% inflation target, or even higher. Over 10 years, 2% inflation will take away a third of your spending power. That's not good. (laughs) No. No, I've said on this show before, it's quite remarkable that it's really out in the open where the central bankers are telling you, really, we're trying to destroy your savings by 2% per year. That's our goal. Our goal is to destroy it. Well, and, and also to deal with a lot of public debt that cannot be repaid. Um, you know, the story I tell uh, uh, very frequently is Elliot Jane, or uh, Bill Janeway, uh, Elliot's son, who's uh, vice chairman of Warburg Bank, is a very smart guy. He teaches at Cambridge now. And he talks about the three phases of finance. The first phase, you borrow, you pay the debt back, and you have the income to cover the interest and pay the principal back. The second phase is when you're just uh, basically uh, paying the interest, but you have to roll the debt again because you don't have the money to pay off the principal. And now we're in the third phase, where many public uh, issuers, many countries, cannot possibly repay their debt. 
and they're almost at the point where they can't even cover the interest payments. And you see that in Europe. Uh, Europe is a disaster when it comes to public uh, fiscal policy, and yet they pretend everything's fine. And this is one reason that we have zero interest rates at the, uh, you know, the European Central Bank, which is run by Mr. Draghi, who did the same thing in Italy. You know, Italy is a disaster, both on the public sector side and the private sector. He is the one who messed up their banking system. And now he's running the ECB. <laughs> it's quite extraordinary. <laughs> and he says, oh, we have to bail out the banks. Well, of course we have to bail them out, Mario. You were the one who merged two, you know, pretty much dead banks down in Italy. And that's now uh, Banca Monte de Pesce de Siena. Uh, they had to bail them out last year. They'll probably have to bail them out again. Uh, same thing with Greece. So we have a debt problem, but we don't know what to do about it politically. And it's, it's a real endemic product problem in all of the industrial countries, even China. China is a washing debt that they never pay back. It's quite incredible. And, and Draghi is a former Goldman Sachs alum as well. Uh, of course. <laughs> so it all makes sense. So when he's trying to bail out the bank, I mean, you have to put it all into context. And then in perspective, let's turn the European banks for a second. What is going on? Because there's been an emerging banking crisis there for quite a while. What's the situation at Deutsche Bank? And as you mentioned, some of the Italian banks that you pointed at. And what is the timeline for this uh, emerging crisis to become a very, very big problem. And uh, just to follow up, how will this affect the U.S. And the, and the ordinary people in the U.S. and around the world? European banks are in much worse shape than their American counterparts, uh, partly because they don't have nearly as much capital. They can't absorb losses. And more importantly, they don't really have strong income. The, the key uh, indicator of whether a bank is in trouble or not is whether it's uh, consistently profitable because it's profits and the ability to fund future losses uh, that really differentiate one bank from the next. So in Europe, you have a culture where they don't have the Anglo-Saxon uh, legal system. They have a more Roman uh, Napoleonic legal system. It's very political. There are no bankruptcy courts that are independent. So the politicians tend to lean on the side of the creditor or the debtors. And so if you're a bank or an investor and you're trying to get your money back, it's very difficult. It takes years and years and years to uh, go through an insolvency process in Europe. So all of the banks have an awful lot of bad debts sitting on their books and nobody's paying them, okay? And the international accounting rules allow the banks to pretend that they're being paid. So their financial statements are useless. It shows income which doesn't exist. So if you really look at these banks today, I would tell you that you know, if, if there's $30 uh, uh, trillion dollars or whatever in total banking assets, half of the banks in Europe are insolvent today. But they just don't wind them up. In the U.S., on the other hand, because we have a very uh, rigorous process for dealing with insolvency, which comes from the founders of our country, um, you tend to have a more transparent and fair process of dealing with debt. And that's not to say you can't have a lot of monkey business involved with a bankruptcy. Of course you can. 
you know, in the 1800s, the robber barons used to use bankruptcy as a, a strategy. Um, but then they bought the judges, too. So that was different. But, you know, here today, U.S. banks are actually in pretty good shape. Uh, the loss rates are very low, and they were forced to build up a lot of capital uh, because the politicians refused to talk about fraud. So they said, no, we need more capital. <laughs> you know, that capital is something a member of Congress can vaguely understand. But when you start talking to them about securities fraud and true sales and all of the things that were really wrong in the 2000s, their eyes glaze over. They, they can't have that conversation. So I think the U.S. is actually in much better shape than, than the rest of the world. Uh, but that doesn't mean we don't have problems. Of course we do. I mean, the biggest problem we have is that our population growth rate is half of 1%. You know, everybody should go out and have a baby. Uh, if you want faster growth. But that's probably not going to happen. Um, so just in terms of the future, two, two and a half, maybe 3% GDP growth is normal. And if you have lots of debt, that's bad news. Because the only way you can grow your way out of that debt is to have exuberance. And that requires a central banker, of course. So, you know, that's why we have boom and bust cycles. If we just had 2% growth, and stable monetary policy the way Milton Friedman wanted, the politicians would be very unhappy. <laughs> right. And that's, and that's the thing. They, they have, they're thinking about the next election cycle, um, yes. and uh, they made a lot of promises. So, I mean, that's why you need the central banks for. And, um, of course, uh, the, 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 the wars that, that keep ranging on, the central banking ties into that too because – <laughs> you need some money to to go and uh, to fight wars. Oh, quite uh, the, the the continuous state of war that goes back to the you know beginning of the twenty first century is a, an enormous problem, not just for the U.S., which has been providing most of the people and the, the resources, but the Europeans. You know, the Europeans were very involved in this uh, this disastrous scenario where we were going to remove Hafez al-Assad as the head of Syria. Uh, and if you want to really look at why we've seen the terrorist attacks in, in France and in other parts of Europe and the, the migrant wave that came out of Syria as a result of that war, it all goes back to the U.S. and the French uh, and some others pandering to the Saudis who thought it was a good idea to remove this guy because he was aligned with the Iranians. Okay, but that, you know, has consequences. And, you know, people like John McCain and a number of other politicians in the U.S. benefit from the continuous state of war. Uh, in fact, McCain is one of the biggest warmongers in the country. Uh, and then you have people like George Soros, who encouraged the Ukrainians to go fight with the Russians. What a great idea. <laughs> you know, so you, all over Europe, if you go down the arc of Europe through the Balkans, through the Ukraine, and then down into the Middle East and Africa, uh, we have a world war, and yet it's not recognized as such. And a lot of big companies and banks benefit from this because they finance it. Now, Chris, one of the things that I wanted to, to, to pick your, your brain on, too, is the Dodd-Frank bill. You know, as I think Rahm Emanuel said, never let a good crisis go to waste, right? So this is something that resulted from the last financial crisis. What is your take on this Dodd-Frank bill? Was it really needed? Um, has it served any purpose? And do you think the Trump administration will uh, eventually repeal this bill? 
I think the rhetoric has changed a lot in the past few weeks. Um, early on, the Republicans were thumping their chests and talking about repealing Dodd-Frank. You know, Dodd-Frank is a lot like uh, the Sarbanes-Oxley legislation that was passed after the collapse of Enron and WorldCom. The legislation doesn't really address the problem, and it, it's a, a Christmas tree of things that were thrown into uh, the slop bucket uh, by various politicians to try and address perceived problems, but not in a comprehensive way. So, you know, part of Dodd-Frank addressed the housing market and the fact that we have 50 states and we didn't have a uniform process for dealing with homes that are, you know, troubled, distressed borrower, house has to be foreclosed. Well, now we have that. And even though I'm not a big fan of the Consumer Finance Protection Bureau and the way they've uh, handled the mortgage industry, which has been just shameful. On the other hand, the part of Dodd-Frank that resulted in us now having a consistent approach to this problem is good, and it should be retained. Uh, The Volcker Rule in Dodd-Frank, which deals with conflicts between banks and their customers, is very good, and it should be retained. I've suggested some changes to it, but I don't want to see it repealed. And I, I actually met with Chairman Volcker recently. We agreed on a full-throated defense of the Volcker rule. He, he, he's one of my favorite Americans. Um, and then the, the resolution authority in Dodd-Frank, which makes the FDIC the receiver for troubled financial companies, whether they're banks or non-banks, is very good. We needed that. I mean, you only have to look at Lehman Brothers, Bear Stearns, both cases where a federal receiver arguably was needed, but nobody went to a federal judge and asked for it. So by having it in the law, it says that, yes, if the president initiates the process, the FDIC can become the receiver the way they do with a bad bank of the entire company, including the holding company. That, I think, is a very, very good idea that, we could have done another way. I'll give you an example. In the 1800s, most of the railroads were restructured with receivers that were appointed by a federal judge. But somebody withstanding has to go and ask the judge to do that, right? Uh, in this case, we didn't have time. There was just no time to put in place those structures and get the courts involved. So now we have the FDIC, which is you know, essentially the government's receiver. And they've done a very good job over the decades of dealing with issues like this. And I think, again, that's a part of Dodd-Frank that was good. But there are many other silly parts of the law which should go. I mean, the idea of treating insurance companies as strategically uh, significant entities is absurd. Uh, the litigation with MetLife and that whole mess is, is just a disaster. But again, uh, because something gets passed by Congress, don't assume it has any logic behind it. You know, <laughs> uh, things that happen in Washington happen for reasons that most of us will never understand. And right. it's, just, it's just the way it is. And that is an interesting take because I was really concerned uh, about how it changed the, the relationship of banking, in essence, between depositors where some of their funds could be used to recapitalize bank with some of the funds of the FDIC in the event of a next crisis. Well, yes. Um, the way it would work, you know, the Dodd-Frank law, a lot of people mistakenly think 
that it would be used to liquidate a big bank. But that's not what would happen. If you had a big bank in distress, the FDIC would take over the bank, run it, probably move the assets of the company into a new company and keep the bad stuff behind the way they do with a bank and then sell the good bank. You would separate it into a good bank and a bad bank. When you have a receiver do this, all of the legal claims stay behind. And that's why it works. When somebody buys a dead bank from the FDIC, none of the past claims against that entity are transferred. So when Jamie Dimon bought Bear Stearns, he bought everything. He got all the past claims, and he's you know, rightly complained about this, but he had to pay all of the securities claims, everything else against Bear Stearns. He also bought Washington Mutual's bank, and he also reaffirmed the debt that came along with the bank. He got sued for that, too. So you know, receivership is a very effective mechanism for fixing things that are insolvent and being able to quickly resolve them because that's good for society. You don't want these situations to fester. Uh, but the notion that the deposits of a bank are going to be used to do something uh, bad, I think, has been overblown because you just can't do it that way. We've already got rules in place that prevent that. And I think that the, the capital rules and the Basel III framework and the Dodd-Frank law, all of these things are forcing banks to become much less risky. And a lot of businesses that they were in over the last 20 years, like uh, securities and all of that, is actually migrating back to broker-dealers, which is good. We need to have bigger broker-dealers that do the risky business, maybe even have them trade derivatives, uh, and get that stuff out of the bank and have the bank basically lend money to customers, take deposits, do certain fiduciary activities, and that's that. And that, to me, is a, a very... Uh, good model for the future. In fact, Tom Honig, the vice chairman at the FDIC, has talked about this. He said, let's put the risky stuff in the broker-dealer that's owned by the company that owns the bank and keep the two separate. So if the broker-dealer gets in trouble, we can fix it. But the bank is in effect. And I think that makes a lot of sense. You're listening to Christopher Whalen on the Cashflow Ninja podcast. We will be right back after a word from our sponsor. International Coffee Farms is a real estate-based specialty coffee farm ownership opportunity. You can own deeded, half-acre parcels in title, already operating specialty coffee farms in Boguete, Panama. They are turnkey managed professionally on your behalf by a team of local experts with sustainable average income of 12% and with cash flow beginning in 12 to 15 months from the date of your parcel ownership. International Coffee Farms' mission is to own and operate specialty coffee farms in Boguete, Panama that are economically, environmentally, and socially sustainable. As part of this mission, 20% of the gross profits of each farm goes towards a socially sustainable fund to improve the lives of the coffee farm workers and their families. International Coffee Farms currently owns and operates eight specialty coffee farms in Boguete, Panama, with parcels available for immediate ownership. To find out how you can become a parcel owner, you can download your free income opportunity report at cashflowninja.com forward slash Panama. You're listening to Christopher Whalen on the Cashflow Ninja podcast, and now back to our interview. Now, Chris, you've done fantastic analysis in your book, Inflated, How Money and Debt Build the American Dream. What is your view currently on the U.S. housing market and the U.S. mortgage market, and what is your, what is your outlook for 2017? 
what's funny, I'm on a, uh, the board of a little company called uh, Weiss uh, Research, which was founded by Alan Weiss, one of the creators of the Case-Shiller Index. And Alan's new company can actually show you individual home prices, which is very interesting, instead of just having a zip code level average, which is what you get with Case-Shiller. Uh, most of the hot markets on the periphery of the United States, California, the East Coast, Texas, Florida, have run double digits for the past five years in terms of home price appreciation. They're slowing down now. And part of the reason is, is that home prices have just gone up so much that they've run out of customers because Americans' incomes are not growing that fast. And you see this particularly in California, uh, Oregon, Washington, Seattle, which is one of the hottest markets in the country. So my sense is, is that home prices are going to kind of plateau, flatten out. They're not going to go down a lot because there's a supply problem. The real reason that home prices have run up so fast is that we're not seeing a lot of home building. The reason for that is that banks are not allowed to lend on construction and development. During the crisis, uh, U.S. banks had about a half a trillion dollars for the construction and development loans. Half of them were charged off. <laughs> okay. So a lot of banks failed, particularly in the Southeast, also in the Southwest, in the, the warmer parts of the country where people wanted second homes. And a lot of banks got annihilated. So the regulators now have been saying to the banks, especially the smaller banks, no construction and development lending, no lending on dirt, as we call it. So because of that, and because of some other factors, you've seen a lot of growth in multifamily housing, apartment buildings, especially high-end stuff. But you haven't seen a lot of construction that suits the middle market. And that's why home prices have gone up so much. So my sense is that the double-digit run and home prices are probably over, but I'm not looking to see home prices fall a lot in the near term, simply because there's no supply. And you know, we have a lot of people in this country who can't find a home. They want to start a family or you know, want to do a move up to a larger home. They can't find it. My, my friends in the business, the loan officers I know, have you know, probably 15 to 20 uh, fully vetted applications from potential home buyers for every property they can sell. So there's a huge imbalance there, and I don't see that changing quickly because there's just no credit available to home builders. Very interesting. And you've covered the auto industry for quite a while. What is your view currently, um, and what do you see happening within this sector? Oh, well, Janet Yellen waved her magic wand, and um, a lot of the animal spirits that had been focused on residential housing during the 2000s uh, refocused on auto loads. And so you had a huge growth both in prime and below prime auto lending. And this includes, you know, companies like CarMax, which will buy cars wholesale from General Motors and Ford and Audi and all the rest of them. And then they turn around and they lease those vehicles or sell those vehicles to their customers. So whereas in the 2000s, uh, leasing, for example, was single digits as a percentage of total sales in, in the U.S. auto industry. Today, it's over 20%. And there's wow. a lot of cars coming off lease, used cars. And the prices, the residual prices for those cars are falling. So a lot of people, a lot of people in the media who follow this have been predicting, and I think rightly so, 
that you're going to see a correction in terms of home prices or uh, auto prices, then you're going to see a drop in the total volume of autos produced by the major automakers because they really, from, my God, uh, 2010, 2011, they recovered after the crisis and they just kept going. And last year, uh, I think we did well over 18 million uh, vehicles sold in this country, which is, is good. That's one of the highest levels we've seen in 40 years. Uh, but now it's going to go down because, again, you know, credit is a concern. They've run out of customers. Everybody who had a pulse in this country was able to you know, get a new car last year. And a lot of the, the secondary market for those used cars is falling dramatically. So you have a car that comes off a three-year lease that might, in theory, be worth twenty twenty-two thousand dollars, but the cash bid for the car is fifteen. What that means is whoever the lessor was, the company that leased that car to the new buyer, uh, is going to take a loss, and those losses are going to ripple through the system. I think you could see some of the smaller uh, lessors that are focused on below prime uh, customers, uh, you know, disappear because they're just not going to be able to withstand the losses. And then the big automakers who have their own captive financing units, they'll take some hits too. Uh, so I expect to see auto sales down probably 5 10% this year, uh, probably settle down around 16 million units and lots of incentives. You know, GM is the worst. They immediately crank up the incentives to try and keep the volumes going. Because what happens with these big companies is they have a lot of fixed costs. And if sales fall, they lose money. Right. So it's, they would almost rather break even on the car sale and just get it out, right, than to have to lay people off. Because if they have to start doing that, then they start hemorrhaging cash. And we saw that in the early 2000s. Remember, GM, Chrysler had to go through a bankruptcy. Ford was restructured. You know, I talk about that in my new book, but it was almost like a bankruptcy. They, they had to go out and hawk everything uh, in order to raise some money to, to restructure the company. So it, it's a brutal industry. It's a very cyclical industry, and there's nothing you can do about it. Very interesting. Now, touching on your new book, you've written two great books, Inflated and Financial Stability, and you're releasing your third book, Ford Men, later this month. Ford is an American success story. And of course, your book and your title, Ford Men, points that there was a very strong team and a lot of other influential people that contributed to the success of Ford. Can you share a little bit more about your book with my listeners? Yes, uh, I'd love to. The uh, subtitle is From Inspiration to Enterprise. And that title was inspired by my old friend, Timothy Dickinson, down in Washington. This is actually my first book. But I didn't have a happy ending at the time because I did most of the work on it about 10, 12 years ago. Uh, the company was in a lot of trouble. Bill Ford was just taking over. Uh, I had met him a couple times when I was acting as a, a, a journalist for the Washington Times. And I just put it aside because I didn't want to end the book that way. Um, but the story really tells uh, the tale of all the different people who made uh, Ford a success, and particularly. Uh, with respect to the subtitle of the book, James Cousins. Uh, James Cousins was a young clerk who worked for a coal dealer named Malcolmson from Detroit who provided the capital for Henry Ford's third business. He had had two business failures. And so the third time around, Malcolmson put up the money and Cousins had to go watch Henry Ford. 
because he had such a bad reputation. He was a tinkerer. He loved to race cars, but he was not a very good businessman. This notion of Henry Ford as a business genius is, is overblown. And so Cousins was the impetus to sell cars. Henry would have tinkered with the cars endlessly. But he said, no, Henry, we're going to put an ad in the newspaper. We're selling cars. And what happened was there was so much demand that they were forced to you know, build a company. Uh, the initial Ford cars were actually built as kits by the Dodge brothers, who were actually on the board of, of then Ford Motor Company. Um, and there's a lot of detail and people that have been airbrushed out of the history over the decades by the Ford Motor Company Public Relations Department. So, you know, you see some of the stuff on TV today. You think Henry Ford built the assembly line. No, he didn't. That was Charles Sorensen, uh, the great Dane who ran Ford Motor Company for 40 years, and he wrote a great book that everyone has forgotten. So a lot of Ford men is just reminding everyone about things that we all used to know. Uh, another great example is uh, John Kenneth Galbraith. He used to write about Ford all the time in Life magazine. And he was scathing. He, he was absolutely scathing in his uh, descriptions of Henry Ford. But we've all forgotten that. Uh, another great example, Henry Ford didn't raise wages. That was James Cousins. Uh, Cousins was haunted by his wealth. He became the great senator from uh, Michigan and was very involved in national politics up through the Great Depression. And in fact, part of the reason I wanted to write this book was a tension between Herbert Hoover, Henry Ford, and James Cousins leading up to the inauguration of FDR. Because Henry Ford in early 1933 declared that he was going to take all his money out of the banks in Detroit. Detroit was, you know, the biggest city in the United States. Financially, it was enormously important. Uh, Edsel Ford, on the other hand, was trying to support the banks in Detroit, which were all in big trouble. And so Henry, you know, made it very clear he wasn't going to cooperate with Hoover. He didn't like FDR. They had terrible enmity between those two men. And so right before, or right after Lincoln's birthday in uh, 1933, uh, the governor of Michigan finds out about this and he closes the bank. So by the time FDR takes office, three, four weeks later, every bank in the United States is closed. And that's because of Henry Ford. And that's a story I was always amazed by. It's, it's documented beautifully in the memoir of Herbert Hoover. But we never talk about it. This was a, a rather big deal. And yet, you know, if you look at the, the hagiographies that have been published about Ford and the Ford family over the years, they kind of you know, skirt over these little details. They don't talk about them. <laughs> <laughs> very, very interesting. I can't wait to, uh, to dive into that book. Now, Chris, I uh, just uh, wanted to uh, pick your brain on this too, since you, your knowledge about the, the industry is amazing. What is, what is your view on Tesla, since they are definitely <laughs> due in this conversation around the uh, automotive industry? Do you see Tesla gaining more of the market share in the coming years as people move toward electric cars? Well, electric cars are not a very good idea. Uh, Henry Ford and Thomas Edison discussed this. Uh, Edison's advice to Ford was use gasoline. And today, if you look at battery technology, uh, not much has changed because the periodic table hasn't changed. You can use lithium. You can use sodium to make batteries. 
but what's changed is that the devices that we use, the motors that we make, are much more efficient than they were 100 years ago when European manufacturers were making electric cars that had lead-acid batteries the size of, size of coffins uh, with this stuff sloshing around, and they couldn't go very far. They would have to be recharged all the time. Uh, I think Elon Musk is a colorful figure in the tradition of uh, P.T. Barnum. Uh, he will spend as much money as you give him in an industry that, frankly, uh, is irrational. Most of the major automakers don't generate enough profit to cover their cost of capital. They're losing money every day. Um, you know, you may have seen David Einhorn was suggesting that General Motors should split their stock. Well, it makes no sense at all because automakers are cyclical. And when sales decline and the economy goes through a period of low growth or no growth, the automakers tend to be in a lot of trouble because they have to keep their operations afloat so that they can make cars when the, the sun is shining. So my sense is, is that the newer entrants, Google, Uber, you know, uh, Elon Musk's enterprise, there are other people who want to make electric cars. Uh, an electric car makes sense in the city. If you can plug that car in overnight when we've got to keep the grid up anyway and charge it for free, okay. But it's not like it's a green proposition because you have to make the electricity to you know, charge the car, right? Uh, I think for most Americans, an internal combustion engine or a hybrid makes a lot more sense. It's, it's very interesting that the Japanese automakers who really understand electronics uh, have gone for hybrids. They're starting to play around with pure electric cars. But again, that's for the city. That's for trips of 50 or 100 miles, you know, maybe over the course of a week. Uh, but you can't really use a vehicle like that effectively. But the bigger point is, is that, you know, a hundred years ago, 110 years ago, when cars first came on the scene, there was vast demand. But today, you're seeing changes in demographics. The millennials who don't drive, don't go to malls, they all want to live in town and you know party all night. Uh, they're not going to be natural buyers for a car. And so you have to think about the future of the industry and just what product it is that the population 50 years from now is going to want. And can you really justify that if you have irrational competitors like Tesla, like Google, who don't care about return on capital? You know, as long as investors are willing to give Elon Musk money, and we're going to space too, by the way, it's not just a car company, uh, he'll spend it. Mm. And that makes it all the more difficult for the other automakers who have to live in some kind of rational world and try and produce profits for their shareholders. Think about it. I mean, if you're General Motors, you still have big pension liabilities. That, that company could get restructured again. Uh, Ford has dealt with some of their structural issues, but still, it's a tough business. I actually asked Bill Ford once, I said, if you could have all of you know, the family's money back today, would you put it in the auto industry? And he, he looked at me and smiled and said, of course. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I would argue that it's a rational being. Many industries around the world which have, you know, governments subsidizing them and a lot of aspects. Everybody wants a car industry, right? The Chinese, the Indians, they all want a car industry. Most of those companies don't make money. Chris, one habit I've observed from wealthy and successful people is that they're always studying new subjects and learning new skill sets. What are you currently studying and what skill sets are you currently learning? My discipline, to the extent I have time since I'm a writer, 
uh, is to read the New York Review of Books. I read the London Review of Books. I try and read about stuff I don't know, just to broaden my horizons a little bit. Um, in terms of study, you know, I'm just getting ready to start a newsletter with Agora Financial in Baltimore that's going to be focused not just on financials, but on fintech. So I'm having to do a lot of basic research about companies that I haven't followed historically, which is great fun. Um, but that's it. I, I always try and season my my time by reading things that have nothing to do with what I do all day. Because I'm, I mostly have my head in numbers or, or I'm talking to people uh, about different things. Like, for example, I've done a lot of work in the mortgage industry, which is very different from the world of banks and finance. And the back of that business, making loans, servicing loans is fascinating. You, you think you know what's going on and then you learn something new. So I, I always like trying to learn from people and, and just get to know things that I don't know today. Because it's only when you realize what you don't know that I think you're a good analyst. Because then you, you, then you know where the holes are. <laughs> right, right. Now, a core message in our show is to leave our families, communities, and the world better than we found it by passing down a mindset, values, and principles to future generations, not just money. So if you cannot pass on any money to future generations and we're only allowed to pass on three principles to them to build wealth and achieve happiness and success, what would they be? Uh, I think uh, first off, it would be to invest in what you know. In other words, don't stretch. Make sure you understand what it is you're putting money into. Uh, Second, and probably the most important, is invest in yourself. Invest in, in the time that you need to gain knowledge and to appreciate different aspects of the world uh, so you can make an informed decision. And then the third thing that I think serves me very well as a a writer is invest in other people. Get to know as many different types of people as you can and try and learn from them because that's really, at the end of the day, the big problem with electronic media and social media is that we're not having conversations. We're not spending time with people and actually getting to know them. We kind of have these little spasmodic uh, exchanges in 140 characters or less. Uh, but I'm not sure that's actually a conversation. Chris, how can my audience learn more about you and uh, your upcoming book? Where can they grab a copy of that when it launched uh, and stay informed of all of the projects that you're involved with? Uh, well, my website is rcwhalen.com, which is a good place to start. I'm also active on Twitter under the same name. Uh, My blog, The Institutional Risk Analyst, was just resurrected a few weeks ago, and uh, we're having a lot of fun with that. Uh, I think we start there. Uh, Ford Men will be released uh, on Amazon on April 11th, and um, you can certainly pre-order, which always makes me happy. But uh, we'll be doing a lot of radio and TV and, and other things about the book over the next year. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. It's just such a great story. It's, uh, you know, the story of Ford is the story of America in the 20th century. And it's thanks to the, you know, the toughness and the courage of Bill Ford, the company has survived and is doing quite well. Uh, so I think uh, it's going to be a lot of fun talking about it. 
Exactly. I can't wait to jump into it. I'll put links to uh, all of those resources you had just mentioned and the Amazon link in today's show notes. Chris, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your journey and your knowledge around all of these topics. Uh, this has been a fantastic experience and thank you so much for providing so much value for my listeners. Look, it's a great pleasure for me and I, I look forward to doing it again. Hi, this is MC Lobsher, the host of the Cashflow Ninja podcast. As you may know, I'm also the president and chief wealth strategist of Valhalla Wealth Financial. We help individuals, families, small businesses, entrepreneurs, and professionals build their wealth outside of Wall Street and help investors maximize the use of every dollar in their personal economy and boost their investment gains. We do this by combining their capital and investments with the financial vehicle of the wealthy, according to the infinite banking concept. If you are interested in learning more, you can email me at info at cashflowninja.com and I will send you a copy of Nelson Nash's book, Becoming Your Own Banker. Thank you for joining my guest, Christopher Whalen, and myself on the Cashflow Ninja today. If you like what you hear and appreciate what we're trying to build here at the Cashflow Ninja, please subscribe, rate, and review our show on iTunes, and share our show with family, friends, and your network. I'm always trying to learn and improve in every area of my life, so if there's any way that I can provide more value to you and serve you better, please reach out to me at info at cashflowninja.com. Jimmy Freeland and Bob Scott have been in your shoes and have used real estate investing to become financially free. They've designed a system to take any beginner to an experienced deal-making investor in the least amount of time. They offer opportunities from basic education, coaching, bridge loan investing to turnkey investments in the cash flowing market of St. Louis, Missouri. For more information, please visit joinupspropertiescom or call Jimmy and Bob at 314-799-2247. Coffee is a proven product and a $90 billion industry worldwide. Through international coffee farms, you have a chance to own and operate your own half-acre parcels in a specialty coffee farm in Panama, professionally turnkey managed for you. You can download your coffee farm ownership opportunity report at cashflowninja.com forward slash Panama. That's our show for today, everyone. Until next time, live a life of passion and purpose on your terms. You have been listening to the Cashflow Ninja with your host, MC Laubscher, the podcast empowering and inspiring people to discover how to generate their own income and manage, grow, and protect their own wealth in the new economy. Today's show notes and resources are available on our website, CashflowNinja.com. This presentation is for educational and informational purposes only. The information being presented and considered does not consider your particular financial objectives or situation, and it does not make personalized recommendations. This material is not intended to replace the advice of a qualified tax and legal advisor or other qualified professionals, and you should not use the information in place of a customized consultation with a licensed professional regarding your specific personal financial objective, situation, and needs. We believe the information provided is reliable, but we do not guarantee its accuracy, timeliness, or completeness.